It's a joy to be with you this morning. Um, we have a special tradition today. Uh, yesterday was All Saints Day, and so that's a time that's set aside in the church calendar to remember uh, those who have come before us and to learn from their uh, example of faith and to, and to learn from uh, them how we can better follow Christ and to worship Him. And so uh, every year we look at the life of a saint, and uh, that's uh, a little bit different than what we normally do on uh, Sunday mornings. Um, I get particularly pretty excited about this because I'm kind of a history nerd. Uh, I teach uh, history for a living, so it's a, actually it's a day when my passion for history and my passion for the gospel can sort of dovetail nicely. So I'm really excited to be here uh, with you this morning. Um, I do want to clarify uh, real quickly, because several people have, have asked me about this, but um, we're going to be talking about a different individual today here than what the, the students are going to be learning back in Radical Kids. So I would encourage you uh, to, if you're a parent, you have kids in Radical Kids, to ask them about uh, the, the great lessons that they're learning. Um, and I know that, uh, that Jen Jolly and, and um, all the people back there are going to be doing a great job talking about a different individual. But we're going to be looking at the life of a man named Henry Garrick. And as we look at this man's life, I hope that what we don't ultimately see is, is this man. Um, but ultimately, what my, my desire is, my hope is, is that we will see Christ and we will see his grace and we will see the gospel in a richer, clearer uh, way that we may not have before. Um, we're going to jump into his life in just a minute, but I did want to look at one uh, biblical text uh, just to kind of frame uh, Henry Garrick's life and, and his ministry and so if you have your Bible, turn with me to Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20. This is a parable that Christ tells in the New Testament. And I think that this is a very fitting parable uh, to set up the life and the ministry of Henry Garrick. It's Matthew chapter 20, starting in verse 1. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. And when he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius, which is a day wage, uh, for the day, he sent them into his vineyard. And he went out and about the third hour and saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to those he said, you too go into the vineyard and whatever is right, I will give you. And so they went and he went out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour and did the same thing. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why have you been standing here idle all day long? And they said to him, because no one hired us. He said to them, you too go into the vineyard. And when evening had come, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last group first. And when those hired about the 11th hour came, each one received a denarius, which is a whole day's wages. And when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more. And they also received each one denarius. And when they had received it, they grumbled at the landowner, saying, These last men have worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden and the scorching heat of the day. But he answered and said to them, Friend, am I doing you no wrong? Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take me what is yours and go your way. But I wish to give to this last man the same as to you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with what is my own? Or is your eye envious because I am generous? Thus, the last shall be first and the first last. I'm not going to have time to fully unpack. We could spend our entire time just expositing this one uh, text. But I do want to just point out that the point of this text is not that 
you know, the Jews were the ones who came first and the Gentiles came later, that the Jews worked harder uh, in the kingdom than the Gentiles have, or that those who come late work equally hard in a shorter amount of time. It's certainly nothing about business practice. There's nothing in here about how we should uh, organize uh, and deal with labor disputes or anything like that. The point of this parable, what Jesus is trying to draw our attention to is the generosity of the vine, of the landowner, of the man who owns the vineyard. And that the generosity that Christ has towards us in the gospel is mind blowing. It is so rich and it is so deep that it's actually scandalous. And as a result of that, sometimes, just like these laborers, we may be tempted to grumble at just how gracious and generous Christ is in his willingness to forgive and to extend uh, the work of the cross onto all who will repent and believe, no matter uh, what their background may have been. And that's really going to be the focus of what we look at when we look at uh, Henry Garrick's ministry. Um, so um, I think I got some pictures here. We'll put the first one up here. Uh, this is Henry Garrick. Uh, he was born in August 1893 in Gordonville, Missouri. He grew up, and uh, just note this on the front end, be looking for the providences of God and how this man's life was being shaped for uh, his later work in ministry. He grew up in a household that was bilingual in English and German. Um, I could not find from the sources how recently his family had immigrated from uh, Germany to the United States, but it was recent enough that he grew up equally fluent uh, in German as he was in English. Um, he came to faith at a relatively young age. Uh, he and his family were very devout Lutherans, and they attended uh, a devout evangelical Lutheran uh, congregation there in Missouri. Um, this is a, a congregation that very much held to the doctrines of Martin Luther, one of the reformers, uh, that, that very much emphasized God's grace and that it was unearned and that it's something that Christ purchases uh, for us that he might legally declare us righteous before God. So Garrett grew up in a household and in a church in which he was soaking in the gospel on a regular basis. Um, after uh, he graduated from uh, high school, he went on to college uh, during World War I, during the war years from 1913 to 1918. He attended St. John's College in Whitfield, Kansas. Uh, after graduating there, uh, he went on to Concord Seminary in St. Louis, where he was ordained in 1926 as a Lutheran minister. He went on to spend uh, much of the next decade serving as a minister at Christ Lutheran Church in St. Louis, uh, until 1935. Uh, of course, by that point, the Great Depression was in full throttle in the United States. And, uh, and then he was appointed at that point to be the director, the executive director of the St. Louis Lutheran City Mission from 1935 to 1943. And so right there in the middle of the Depression, this is a time when lots of people uh, were, were having hardships. There was lots of unemployment, lots of poverty. And he really threw himself into reaching people who are in, in kind of the least uh, situations in life, people who are suffering, people who are uh, not in, in good places, uh, you know, folks that were uh, in maybe hospital uh, situations because they were too ill, they were shut-ins. Uh, he um, worked out with uh, folks in the prison. He actually had a very extensive uh, prison ministry that was very vibrant during this time period, even had a, a radio show to, to broadcast to folks who uh, were not able to go to any location. So he's working with the poor, the downtrodden, those who have really um, are in a place of suffering and uh, in a place where there's really not a lot of hope oftentimes. 
And so uh, going into the years of World War II, he had already had extensive uh, ministry among the prisoners in the penitentiary at St. Louis, among all these other populations that he had been working with. So the World War II uh, breaks out, and uh, Garrick uh, decides that he's going to join up. Uh, he is 50 years old at this point, and in 1943, he decides that he's going to go to the chaplain school at Harvard University uh, so that he can serve as a chaplain in the U.S. military. And I think that there's there's even a little application here on the side, you know, that um, normally we think about going and getting involved in a war that's kind of a young man's, uh, I guess, game. And, and so people uh, would say, you know, hey, you're 50. Like, you don't have to, to get involved with that. You don't have to go to this fight and, and deal with these deprivations. Let someone else do that for you. But when we understand the gospel and we understand what Christ has done for us, there's, there's never a point at which we're too old uh, that we're no longer able to serve in the kingdom. There's never a point at which we can't uh, trust in Christ and go into really difficult circumstances um, because he'll lead us uh, there and he'll, and he'll work through us no matter where we find ourselves in life. So Garrett goes, uh, he graduates uh, from the, the, the chaplain school at Harvard and is assigned to the U.S. Army's 98th General Hospital. Uh, he ships out with the Army. He goes to England in March of 1944, and he basically stays with the hospital as the Allied forces begin the invasion of Europe and moves with the hospital as it moves from England uh, into to Germany. So he's he's there in England. He's he's later transferred into Normandy after D-Day took place. You know the hospital is there behind the front lines, but he's following the army and he ends up being stationed in Munich, Germany, uh, in the fall of 1944 and into the winter of 1945 um, as the Allies began to invade Germany. Uh, while he was stationed in Munich, uh, he had the opportunity to visit uh, one of the concentration camps. We have a brief picture of that. Um, this is the concentration camp at Dachau. Um, you see on the, the gate there, there's a, a motto that translated in English means work makes you free uh, because the it was kind of a cruel joke that the Germans would play. They often would work Jews to death. And so basically, as long as you were still able to get up and work, you could survive one more day. But when you were no longer physically able to work, that's when they killed you. Um, and so this is one of many concentration camps, of course, that, it, that was uh, present uh, during World War II, during the Holocaust. And, uh, and so Garrick firsthand experienced the, some of the evil of that. And, uh, and of course, uh, it's something that, that we've all been you know, later taught in school, but he was right there experiencing it. And when he went to the concentration camp, uh, according to um, one of the sources, and according to his own uh, words uh, that he wrote later in a, in a newspaper article, he said that he put his hand up against the wall and his hand touching the wall came away smeared with the human blood that had seeped through the wall. And so he was very uh, in touch with the evil and the suffering of what the Nazis had inflicted on Europe. Um, while he was stationed here uh, in Munich um, at serving in the hospital, um, the Nuremberg trial began, and uh, I'll talk more about that in just a minute, but essentially this was a trial that was held after World War II uh, to, to prosecute all the top Nazi officials that had not committed suicide uh, for war crimes against humanity. So that, that trial was in the, the, you know, they were organizing it, they were getting it together, they already had uh, captured um, some of the Nazi high command and he was told, uh, Henry Garrick was told in November of 1945, he is now 52 years old, 
that uh, he was going to be reassigned to the 6,850th Internal Security Detachment at Nuremberg to serve as the spiritual advisor to the detainees there uh, that were on trial. So he's being assigned to be a chaplain in, in the prison that's holding essentially all of the Nazi high command that they could catch. Um, and just for a moment, I mean, if you think about just the, um, I guess, the intimidation factor of that sort of an assignment, um, you know, this is a man who had, had certainly uh, seen plenty of, of evil things in his lifetime and had served in prison ministry. But these are some of the most hated individuals on the planet. They're collectively responsible for the deaths of millions of people. And that's who he's being asked to go and to, uh, to minister to. Um, he was told that he actually had a choice on whether or not to accept this assignment, um, which is interesting. You don't normally get a choice in the army. You know, you're normally just told where to go and you go. But because of his age, uh, since he was 52 years old, he was actually old enough that he could voluntarily get himself reassigned to an inactive reserve status and be shipped home and, and go back to the States. And his commanding officer even said, look, you don't have to do this. You know, you can, I'll help you out if you don't want to go to Nuremberg. We'll get someone else to go. And so he had a couple of days to think about it. Um, he had plenty of reasons not to want to go. Um, this was a very unpopular assignment. Nobody really wanted to go to Nuremberg um, because these are some of the most hated men in the world uh, that he would be going to, to visit. Um, in addition to that, he had not seen his wife uh, in over two years. Um, they had been separated uh, because of his time uh, serving in, in the military. Um, all three of his sons were in the U.S. military. Uh, two of them uh, were badly wounded by the, the Germans. Um, one of them was, uh, he, he still, he lived through this, but uh, according to Garrick's own words, had been literally ripped apart in the fighting that took place at the Battle of the Bulge. So in his own family, he had had to suffer uh, at the hands of, of what the Nazis had inflicted uh, in World War II. Of course, we talked about already that he had experienced Dachau. He had seen the the concentration camp victims and had seen them liberated and, and the medical attention that they were having to receive because of their treatment at the hand of the Nazis. Uh, and so all of these things uh, were going to tempt him to be bitter and to be angry at the Germans. He had suffered, he had seen the suffering of soldiers in the hospital that he had been working with uh, during this whole time. And so he had all kinds of reasons to be bitter at the Germans. And these are not just, you know, average soldiers. These would be the Germans that were responsible for perpetrating um, all of these evils that he had witnessed. Um, in addition to that, he felt inadequate. I mean, who wouldn't uh, under the circumstances? Um, he writes, how could a humble preacher, a one-time Missouri farm boy, make any impression on disciples of Adolf Hitler? You know, um, when we think about our call to evangelism, we're, we're told to, to take the gospel to everyone. But I think that maybe, I don't know, some of some of you are maybe like me, that we have a tendency to think of some people as, I guess, soft targets and some people as hard targets. And it's easier to want to gravitate toward those that we see as being maybe easier, um, I guess, to talk with with the gospel. And that really doesn't understand the power of the Holy Spirit or the power and the work of God in the gospel. But but it's easy to understand where he might feel intimidated uh, by this charge. Um, he spent several days in prayer, and Garrick says that after several days of intense prayer, that slowly the men at Nuremberg became to me just lost souls whom I was being asked to help. And so he agrees to take this assignment uh, to go and to serve as their chaplain. Let me give you a little bit of background about the Nuremberg trial so you understand uh, what he was kind of walking into here. 
Um, the Nuremberg trial was very controversial and unprecedented. Um, I guess you could say some of the things that had taken place during World War II were unprecedented in themselves. Uh, but this was an attempt by a group of nations, the Allies, to actually put on trial the leaders of, of the Nazi regime for war crimes against humanity uh, and a sense of uh, upholding uh, international law. And there really hadn't been a whole lot in, in the realm of inter- international law before this. There had never been a time where a group of countries had essentially put another nation uh, or the leaders of another nation on trial in quite the same way. Um, and so this was in particularly in response to uh, the Holocaust. Um, the city of Nuremberg itself was was strategically chosen by the Allies because it had been the site of many uh, rallies during the Nazi Party's rise to power, uh, going all the way back to the 1920s and throughout the 30s and, and through the war years. Uh, Nuremberg was kind of ground zero of the Nazi Party. Um, they would have these massive annual al- um, ra- rallies around this time of year, and just tens and tens of thousands of people would show up and listen to Hitler and listen to other uh, people that were in the Nazi Party just kind of spewing their um, their doctrine. And so because this was kind of the, the heart of the Nazi Party, that's why they wanted to choose this location as a site for the trial to put these leaders uh, on trial for their crimes uh, with the Holocaust because they wanted this to symbolically be a way to, um, I guess, counter the evil of the Nazi regime. And this and this is also going to be part of the Allies' denazification program. It was essentially, um, you know, when we occupied Germany, uh, we tried to put the German population to kind of a reverse brainwashing uh, program. They had been brainwashed for years under Hitler and Goebbels and the Nazi uh, party. And so um, they were, you know, showing people, you know, victims of, of the Holocaust and showing them footage of what had taken place to try to convince them that Nazism was evil. And so this is all happening at Nuremberg. It's very controversial. Um, cynics are going to note that uh, the Soviet Union are going to partake in the Nuremberg trials as one of the prosecutors, uh, along with the other allied powers. And not to go too far into history here, but if you know anything about Joseph Stalin, the Soviet Union, he was arguably as evil as Hitler was. I mean, he had killed millions of his own people. Uh, he was responsible for, for the death of millions of Germans. When the, when the Soviet army occupied Germany, um, they were very uh, brutal in seeking revenge for the evil that had been done to them and the German invasion of Russia. So, you know, he could just as easily have been there on the docket uh, with any of these other men. And so people are going to note that it's kind of hypocritical for the Soviets to be there accusing the, the Nazis of, of being evil while they themselves uh, are not being put on trial. Um, others uh, would say that this w- was not a legal trial because the Nazi party had never agreed to any sort of international law that, that prohibited their actions. And so, therefore, to try to put them on trial for something they had not previously agreed to was illegitimate. Um, you know, so there's a lot of cynics that want to say that the Nuremberg trials is just a basically an example of victor's justice, and it wasn't really legal. However, I disagree with those assessments. Um, I think that the Nuremberg trial actually stands to the reality that God has created the world in such a way that there is an absolute moral order. And in our postmodern context, where there's so many people who want to say that right and wrong is just a matter of perspective, when we look at the Holocaust, uh, we're confronted with the reality that there are 
things that are absolutely wrong and that everyone should recognize that as being wrong, regardless of their country, regardless of their ethnicity or what time that they live in. And so the fact that confronted with the massive suffering and the massive evil and the massive inhumanity of the Holocaust, that something reached out in these countries and they needed to do something uh, even if it was only symbolic, even if it was only touching the tip of the, t- of the iceberg, to try to enact some sense of justice uh, for what had taken place. And so I don't think that it was um, a waste of time for the Allies to do this. The Nazi leaders on trial at Nuremberg faced four charges. Uh, first, crimes against peace. Second, planning a war. Third, war crimes. And then crimes against humanity. There were 21 defendants uh, at the Nuremberg trial. And again, these are men who are in the top leadership of the Nazi party. Um, 13 of these 21 defendants were Protestant Lutherans, and these would be the members of Garrick's congregation. So I'm just going to go through very quickly and tell you who these folks are. Imagine these guys showing up for your radical life group, okay? The first is Hermann Goering. Uh, he was a Reich Marshal and the head of the Luftwaffe, the German Air Force, which had uh, been responsible for things like the London Blitz, bombing civilians and uh, cities in addition to um, bombing soldiers. Um, so directly responsible for the deaths of countless uh, thousands of people. Uh, Joachim von Ribbentrop. I asked Bronson to help me with the pronunciation before church, but I'm probably still going to butcher it. So sorry, Bronson. But uh, Joachim von Ribbentrop, uh, he was the foreign minister. Uh, before World War II uh, took place, Ribbentrop actually was one that was responsible for um, negotiating a secret treaty between the Nazis and the Soviets uh, that divided up Poland. And that was actually the, the incident that started World War II. So he was complicit in that as well as um, other parts of Hitler's uh, program of manipulation and trying to take over Europe. Uh, Field Marshal Wilhelm Keitel, uh, he was the chief of the staff of the high command of the Wehrmacht, uh, basically the highest ranking or one of the highest ranking military uh, officers in the German military. He had been unquestionably loyal and obedient to Hitler all throughout the war years, uh, responsible again for the death of tons of people. Uh, Hans Frick, who was the governor general of Poland. Uh, you might know that Poland was the site of many, if not most, of the concentration camps. There was a large Jewish population as well as a large Slavic population. And, and so uh, that's where places like Auschwitz were located. And they were very – there was just a lot of cruelty that took place there. And so he would have been responsible for helping to organize that. Uh, Walter Funk, who was the minister of economics, and Halzomar Schott. Sorry. <laughs> uh, he was the Reich Bank president and former minister of economics. Both of these guys uh, were basically responsible for facilitating uh, the, the looting of Europe. Um, you know that they um, were taking like things like the filings from the from the teeth of the Jewish people and, and turning it into gold bars and robbing homes and robbing factories and you know organizing uh, the train schedules that that helped uh, facilitate the transfer of people to the concentration camps and all those sorts of things. Um, one of the things that, that Bronson and I were talking about before church is that, you know, when you think about the Holocaust, we, we tend to think of just like the soldiers. We think of these SS goons that are the ones that are responsible. But really, for the Holocaust to have taken place, it, it required the cooperation of millions of just average German citizens and bureaucracies, you know, just pushing pencils over paper to, to help make all of the apparatus of the state click into place so that they could perpetrate this crime. And so that's why you've got bankers on trial as well as, you know, military officials. 
uh, you had Admiral Card. Carl Donitz, uh, who is a Grand Admiral of the German Navy and formerly the commander of the uh, U-boats, uh, the German submarines, which during the war years would attack uh, civilian ships as well as military ships. Um, Admiral Eric Rader, another uh, Grand Admiral of the German Navy. Balder von Schirach, uh, he was the leader of the Hitler Youth Movement and the Gauleiter of Vienna. Um, the Hitler Youth Movement's kind of like Boy Scouts um, that are Nazis. Um, they were intentionally, uh, the, in the years leading up into World War II, the Hitler Youth Movement is intentionally used to shut down all other youth programs in Germany, including youth groups and Catholic and Protestant circles. Those became illegal. The only approved group or club was this Hitler Youth Movement. Um, they used this time to train these uh, young men to basically um, be militarized so that by the time that they were old enough, they could transfer into the German military. In the meantime, they volunteered to help out with various tasks that the Nazi party assigned them. So, for example, uh, when they occupied Poland and they took the Jews and they kicked them out of their houses, the Hitler Youth uh, organized groups to go and identify which houses had been vacated and to help German citizens relocate into uh, this now unoccupied housing. So they help moving, basically move in people into someone else's house. Um, and so any kind of thing like that, helping to uh, the helping the Nazi cause, and that was organized by this uh, individual. Uh, Fritz Sockel, uh, he was the chief of slave labor recruitment. So he's one of the guys responsible not only for uh, the those that, that were working for slave labor in the concentration camps, but also even just German citizens or citizens from occupied Europe that would be required to go and work in German factories without pay to help produce for the war machine. Albert Speer, the Reich Minister of Armaments and Munitions, uh, was responsible for creating the tanks and planes and bullets and so on that were used in the war. Uh, Baron Konstantin von Neurath, uh, he was the former foreign minister and later the protector of Bohemia and Moravia. Basically, he was the ruler of occupied Czechoslovakia. And again, you know, he was responsible for um, just horrible atrocities as occupying, um, especially in Eastern Europe, the Germans, the Nazis had racial theories that these people were inferior. And so they would just go out of their way to butcher people unnecessarily. Uh, Hans Fritsch, who was a radio propaganda chief, he was basically uh, Joseph Goebbels' understudy, and Goebbels was uh, the head of the, the radio propaganda, uh, the propaganda program in Nazi Germany, but he committed uh, suicide along with Hitler and was not able to be brought to trial. So these are the 13 men that Garrick is being asked to go and, and minister to. So again, imagine that's the crew that shows up at your radical life group. The chief defense of the Nazis, uh, with only one exception, was that they were only following orders, that, that they were just doing what they were told by their superiors. Um, the final verdict on October 1st, 1946, uh, resulted in death by hanging for 12 of these men. Uh, seven of them served very long prison sentences, three for life. Um, only two were acquitted. Um, before he began work at Nuremberg, uh, Garrick was emphatically told that nothing he did would influence the outcome of the trial. So there's no motivation here of like, you know, if these guys somehow reform themselves, that means they're going to get off easy, right? He was told it doesn't matter what you do, it doesn't matter what they say, you know, the, that's separate from uh, what's going to be taking place in the courtroom. Also, he was told that the only way that he would be allowed to have contact with the prisoners is if they voluntarily asked to see him in their cells, right? So um, he's going into the situation. It's a very hopeless situation uh, to go into from a ministry standpoint. 
they went to the um, courthouse uh, in Nuremberg where they were holding the trials, and there was, a, there was a prison there. And in the prison, they knocked out uh, the wall between two cells to create a chapel space. So, I mean, it was a very small chapel. They set some chairs up uh, in this small area. Uh, there was an organ that was donated by someone that they put in this chapel, and the organ player was a former high-ranking Nazi SS police officer. Um, and so that was where they had church uh, in, in the Nuremberg trials. Um, another interesting story before I talk a little bit about what took place there. Uh, in the middle of the trial, there was a rumor that circulated that Garrick might go home, that he was going to be reassigned and, and go back to the States. Um, by that point, uh, the prisoners at the trial had all come to appreciate him so much that they, with the permission of the prison authorities, uh, wrote a letter to Garrick's wife. I, I suppose somehow they thought that um, she was responsible for asking him to come home, and they wanted to convince Garrick's wife to, to let him stay. And so these Nazi leaders, they wrote this letter, and every single one of them signed it, even the ones that were not uh, the Protestants that, that Garrick was working with. Uh, and, and so here's this Missouri, you know, farm wife, you know, that's getting this letter from 21 guys who used to be the leaders of the Nazi empire asking if she would grant her per- permission for her husband to stay and minister to their spiritual needs. Uh, very unusual letter. There's actually archived records of this. Um, and she replied by airmail simply, they need you, um, even though she hadn't seen her husband now for several years, um, she she told him basically, stick it out with these guys. So um, let's talk about what he did in his ministry with these prisoners at Nuremberg. Garrick met with each prisoner in his cell individually, and uh, the first thing he did was was shake hands with them uh, before introducing himself and asking if they would like to go to a chapel service that would be held in the prison. Uh, he was later very criticized for this. I mean, again, he's he's shaking hands with Nazis that were in charge of, of the Third Reich. And some people said that he was, you know, a Jew hater and that, you know, he just was, you know, too forgiving to these Nazis. But he wanted to make sure that if he's going to minister to them with the gospel, they had to get off on a, on a good foot. So uh, he went by each uh, of the individual cells uh, to ask each of the people there if they would come to his chapel service. Um now, this is what's amazing. Of the 15 possible people that could have showed up on that first Sunday, 13 came. Um, that, that just blows my mind that these guys, despite everything else they had been in, would actually voluntarily, didn't have to go, show up at this church service. And they stayed every Sunday thereafter until the completion of the Nuremberg trial, some of them until their death. Of the, the people who came, um, potentially eight uh, of those congregation became Christian during this time period. Um, the first, uh, or among these that, that became Christian, uh, Garrick, when he first visited William Keitel in his cell, found that he was reading his Bible, um, that that's what he was doing. And, uh, and so he prayed that Christ would be merciful to him. And uh, Garrick prayed with him, and, and he would come to the services um, Sockel, he was the guy who was in charge of the slave labor program. He was actually crying in his cell um, because of the, the crimes that he had committed and uh, later repented. And he was going to be the first uh, of the people there that was allowed to receive, to receive communion by uh, Garrick because of his belief in the gospel. In time, Fritz, Shirok, and Speer were also allowed to receive communion around Christmas of 1945. 
uh, Keitel and Rader were allowed to receive communion in the spring of 1946. Uh, Ribbentrop was the last to be allowed to receive communion. Um, he did not eventually convert until uh, the very end. It was after he had heard um, his final plea in court and they were still in the sentencing process. That's when he finally broke down. Um, he was one that Garrick in particular was very interested in because he was a skeptic who had been trying to come up with rational reasons why not to believe in Christianity. And being in his cell all the time, all he had to do was read his Bible and talk with Garrick. And so in time, he came to faith. Um, one more potential convert was Frick. Um, he actually confessed and repented moments before his execution. Um, they were actually coming to his cell to take him away to be executed, and he asked if he could have a few minutes with Garrick and said that he had secretly come to believe the gospel in the church services they had been attending and, uh, and repented right before he was let off. Um, I've, I've been telling you that, that these guys were allowed to receive communion. Let me explain uh, what in the Lutheran tradition took place in that, in that celebration, in that ceremony. Before someone was allowed to take communion in the Lutheran faith, the pastor would address the communicant and say, I now ask you to before God, is this your sincere confession that you heartily repent of your sins, believe on Jesus Christ and sincerely and earnestly purpose by the assistance of God and the Holy spirit from now on to amend your sinful life, then declare so by saying yes. So each of these men that he was, was taking communion made that confession every time uh, they took communion. Okay. Um, of course, some people are going to say that uh, these guys only repented because they were scared of what might come next. Garrick responded this way. He said, I've been a preacher for a long time and have decided that that is the only way a good many folk find themselves. You know, um, when I think about it, when I first came to the gospel many years ago, being scared of hell and what might follow was a part of that. That doesn't need to be all of it, and that doesn't, that's not the end of Christian discipleship, but that doesn't mean that repentance is less genuine because fear might have been something that was part of the process. Christ often talked about uh, the judgment that came for those who refused to repent as a way to try to motivate uh, folks to repent. Um, Garrick also said this, I have many years of experience as a prison chaplain, and I do not believe I am easily deluded by phony reformations at the 11th hour. This is not a guy who is walking into the prison for the very first time. Uh, he had spent over a decade in prison ministry before he was even allowed to come uh, uh, to here at Nuremberg. In fact, one of the reasons why he was chosen, I told you earlier, um, to see God's providence at work, he was chosen specifically because he was one of the few chaplains that could speak German, that he had more prison experience than any other chaplain that was there, and because he was a Lutheran, which was the denomination that these uh, guys were part of. And so, um, and so he had plenty of experience to know the difference between people who were sincere and those who were just saying something. In fact, uh, just to show you a contrast, uh, at one point, Garrick refused to grant communion to Hermann Goering, the guy who was the head of the Luftwaffe, um, he had said to the prison psychologist the only reason he went to the church services was so he could get out of his cell. And uh, he also asked Garrick if he could take communion before he was to be executed. And Garrick said no, because basically Goering's attitude was, this is fire insurance. Like, can I take communion just in case there's something to all this stuff that you guys have been talking about? And he's like, no, I'm not going to do that because you haven't evidenced sincere faith or repentance. So Garrick was not hasty in granting communion to these guys. There was often a period of time in which he um, um, waited for them before he um, allowed them to receive communion. 
Uh, in contrast, Ribbentrop, who was one of the last, um, when he was, Garrick actually walked with these guys individually, one at a time, as they were taken to be hanged. And, uh, and so before the, the noose was put on this guy's neck and he was dropped and, and executed, um, Ribbentrop looked at Garrick and he said, I place all my confidence in the Lamb who made atonement for my sins. May God have mercy on my soul. And he looked at Garrick again and said, I'll see you again. And then he dropped and he was, and he was gone. Um, you know, there's so much that I had to leave out in, in telling this story. Um, I would encourage you, if you're interested, I can give you some sources where you can go and read more about Garrick. But let me just draw a few points of application before um, we close out today. And I wanted to make sure that you see a few things. Um, and, and the first thing I want to say, and this is the least important point of application, but it's still important, is that part of the reason why the Holocaust happened is because people refused to let their faith influence their politics. Um, that there were millions of Germans, many of them Protestant, Lutheran, Catholic, who somehow thought that their religious life was disconnected from their political life and did nothing in the rise of the Nazis in, uh, in Germany. We have an opportunity in the United States to be able to uh, have a voice in our political system. On Tuesday, we have the opportunity, the right, and the freedom to go and to vote. And so I'm not here to try to tell you who you should vote for, but I will say that we have a responsibility to apply our faith in the political arena and that we need to be politically engaged and that we don't need to sit back and passively watch uh, as evil takes control uh, over the country. And maybe I should also mention that voting is not the end of political engagement. Voting is just one act in political engagement that we can continue to work as activists in many different ways to advance the gospel and the cause of Christ in politics and in society. And we don't have to disconnect that from our day-to-day life. So that's, that's one point to think about. Um, more importantly, we must never think that we have done anything in the slightest to earn our position in Christ. The reality is, is that we are all as helpless and as dependent on Christ as these men were. You know, when I first read through this, this story, my knee-jerk reaction is want to judge these guys and be like, oh, they're Nazis, you know, they're faking it, you know, I mean, how do we know that this was for real? How do we know this is sincere? And the reality is, is that there's a sneaking suspicion. You know, we've sung so much today and we've already heard so much today that we do not earn the gospel. It is, it is a free gift that God gives to us. And yet, and yet, there's this sneaking little voice in the back of my head that thinks that somehow by going to church and by, you know, doing this message and all the little things I do over the course of my life that somehow earns some slight merit in position with Christ. It, it doesn't, right? Um, these guys were in the same position that we are, and but for the grace of God, we could have found ourselves in their shoes. It is only by grace that we are saved. It is not something that we have done in ourselves. There is no part of us that contributes to the process of our salvation, nor do we earn our salvation on the back end by lives of good works afterwards. You know, um, you know, this guy who confessed and, and p- repented right before his execution, you know, the fact that he may have been a Christian for seconds before his death does not make him any less a Christian than someone who's been a Christian their whole life, right? Because it's nothing that we bring to the table. It's all because of Christ. Um, also, it's important to remember that the reason these people are condemned to hell is not because they committed genocide, but because they rejected Christ. 
the temptation in our society is to define evil as killing people or, or breaking the law or stealing things. But those are small crimes compared to the crime of looking at the almighty, infinite, holy Savior of the universe and saying that he is not worth my time or affection. That crime is infinitely uh, evil. And that's why hell is the only infinitely just punishment for people who commit that crime. And every other sin that we commit, every other wrong thing I do has its source in the rejection of Christ. It has its source in not seeing the glory of God and not worshiping him and not adoring him and not thinking that he is worth my life and every choice that I make in it, right? And so we need to remember that that is the real ground of why people are convicted. And, in that, and from that standpoint, whether you, you kill a million people or no one at all, we equally stand guilty uh, before a righteous and holy God because we have despised him, okay? Also, there, no one is beyond the reach of the gospel. I hope this gives you hope. Um, it's never too late. Maybe there's someone in your family. Maybe there's a friend or a coworker that you've been talking about with the gospel, and it just seems like it's not going anywhere. And you're tempted to want to give up. And you're tempted to want to say, you know, this is a lost cause. This is hopeless. It's never hopeless. It's never too late. Because the reality is, since we are not ones that do anything in the process of conversion, we don't earn our salvation. We don't generate it or produce it. It's all a work of Christ. It's all a work by grace. And he can take his time in accomplishing that work. Um, I remembered uh, there's a passage I read in one of C.S. Lewis's books, and I can't remember which one, but he was talking about how God is outside of time. He doesn't experience time the way we do as a moment-by-moment thing. And so he talked about how because God is outside of time, he can see any moment for as long as he wishes. Like the split second that a, a pilot throws up a prayer as his plane is crashing can stand present before God's mind for all eternity. So no matter how much it may seem like there may be hard cases that are out there, we must never give up hope and always believe that no matter what the, the course of someone's life may look like, who knows, but that at one moment in time, God will be gracious and grant them repentance before it's over. We also need to just bask in the wealth of the riches of the mercy of Christ. You know what really to scandal the gospel isn't so much that Christ is willing to forgive these men as much as he is you and I, but that he was willing to go to the cross for these men, just like he did for you and I. I you know, I can't wrap my mind around the generosity and the grace of Christ. I really can't. It's like looking at the ocean, and, and so I climb up on a hill to get a little bit better view, and maybe I can see a few more miles, but I still haven't seen the end of it. You know, even if I were to climb up to the tallest building in town and look out on the ocean of Christ's grace, I still can't see the end of it. If I were to charter a plane and fly up into the sky, you'll never see the end of the generosity and the grace that Christ lavishes for us. And I hope that's a source of encouragement for you because there's a temptation sometimes for me to feel like somehow I'm coming to the end of it. You know, that I blew it one more time and how long can Christ continue to put up with me and my mess? You know, and the reality is, is that there is no end, that Christ uh, is willing to, he, he paid it all. There's no remainder. It's not that the blood of Christ was only sufficient up to a certain point, and then after that it's too much, right? Um, his perfect righteousness that was, was put to death on the cross in my place and in your place for our sins perfectly grants us the riches of Christ. And so we have no need to fear that there's ever an end to grace. There's nothing we can do that takes us beyond the reach of the gospel. 
And then because of these truths, our lives ought to be marked by worship and bold evangelism. You know, I, I hope, I, I know my words are not enough to tell this story properly. It's certainly they're not enough to, to, to properly show the grace and the glory of Christ. But when the, the reality of the gospel begins to work on our heart, that should drive us to worship. It should drive us to, to being grateful that Christ would take someone like me, someone who's really no better than these people that were killed at Nuremberg and would use me, uh, give me life and use me in ministry and that would grant me relationship with him, that I would have opportunity to be with him forever. And that as a result, we can boldly proclaim that truth to whoever we come across without worrying about whether they're too far gone. So that's what I would encourage you to do. I'll pray and uh, the band will come up and lead us in a time of response. Let's pray together and ask that the Lord would give us such a vision of the gospel. Father, thank you so, so much. Um, a million times thank you for all eternity saying thank you that you and your grace and your generosity and your love are willing to give uh, forgiveness and repentance to, to someone like me and someone like these men. I pray, God, that you would lift our eyes up to see you, that we would not um, just focus on the details of Garrick's life or his ministry, that he would not be our hero, but that you would, and that we would be blown away by what we see. God, I pray that you would, by your spirit, move your people to respond and worship, that your kindness in the gospel would lead us to repent of those things which uh, hurt our relationship with you, and that we would be filled with a desire and a passion to share the gospel that you have given us, the good news of who you are in Christ with those you bring across our path. Would you lead us now in worship spirit in Christ's name?